Hello, my friends. Today we are talking to Tim O'Reilly, the founder of O'Reilly Media, and we discuss his essays on the 21 technologies for the 21st century, why it's not a zero-sum game when bringing value to the customer, and how AI adoption is helping to redefine the enterprise. All of this right here, right now, on the Modern CTO Podcast. This is the Modern CTO Podcast. Tim! Hey. How are you, my friend? I'm good. I'm excited. We're recording. Is that cool? We're just going to hang out and talk and have a good time. It's fine. That's fine. We have so much content to cover today. We do. Your content's amazing, man. I was reading your, your latest two articles. You're a fantastic uh-huh. writer. Oh, well, thank you. Appreciate that. When did you get started? Like, when did you start writing? Really right out of college. I, I had a couple of sort of projects that are too hard to uh, explain, but then the, the first thing I actually got asked to write by a friend to write a, a book about Frank Herbert, science fiction writer, the author of Dune. And then about the same time, I had a friend who was a programmer who got asked to write a manual and he, he didn't know how to write. I didn't know anything about computers. We sort of, I said, look, I'll just back you up. I'll help you with the writing part. And we would go in and, and, and talk to the engineers and, you know, about the project. And then I would, I would basically be, you know, say nothing. And then afterwards I'd debrief him, you know, what were they really talking about here? And uh, it actually, in a lot of ways, it was the best training. I did some of my best work back then because it was all pattern recognition. I was originally, you know, a classicist and it was a lot like, you know, parsing a Greek or Latin manuscript. You know, you kind of figure out what the words are, you figure out what order they go in, uh, you know, you figure out, you know, what's, what's the structure of the conversation? You know, I would often, you know, find myself going, oh, wait, these two different engineers are really talking about the same thing using different words, you know, because and I would sort of be able to restructure the documentation totally based on this idea of, uh, you know, it really goes back to general semantics in a lot of ways, you know, Korzybski talked about structure, order, and relation, and I would just be looking for the structure of things. And that kind of set up a kind of map-making sensibility for me, I think, with respect to tech, where I would just go, oh, these things go together. Oh, wait, there's a, there's a dissonance in the pattern here. And so there was just a lot of pattern recognition uh, you know, in the way I, I kind of got into tech. And again, obviously, I did eventually learn quite a bit and you know, started doing programming and, and, and so on, but I didn't start there. So do you have a writing habit? Is this something that you practice like on a schedule? No, once once you do a lot of writing, it's it's like it's kind of like saying, "Do you have a speaking practice schedule?" I do. <laughs> <You know? laughs> uh, well, yeah. I mean, I guess for if you're if you're doing that professionally, but you know, I, after I got through that first book on Frank Herbert and a, a number of computer manuals, you know, I could just sit down and write. General, that doesn't mean that you know sometimes I don't have to really cogitate on something. And, you know, reworking and, and, and rewriting is always, you know, kind of a key part of the practice. But just getting the words out is no harder than having a conversation like this. I agree. When I did my first book, I didn't realize how much work is in the editing process. The yes. first, there, I think I did between six and eight full draft revisions. Like went through it with an, I went through it with two different editors. And it was amazing because you're on time like, four 
of editing this and you notice there's a misspelled word or just words out of order because your eyes adjust to it. Well, more than that, like in my early days when I was writing manuals and didn't really completely understand what I was doing, I felt like I had to, uh, you know, work, go, go rewrite it almost three times. And actually, it was really less of the writing. I guess it was like, read, you know, because often technical writing, at least in the old days, it was really taking a, a, an engineering spec and turning it into a manual. It wasn't writing from scratch. I mean, yes, you interviewed the engineers and so on, but there was a body of writing and it was just, it was, it was changing it for a different purpose. And again, I'm old enough that it, it was, it was controversial in those early days when, you know, you want, we wanted to put things in the first person, you know, or second person, you know, like you should do this or, you know, cause they, it was always like the system does X, Y, Z. And the, the battles we had over this thing doesn't work. And they go, yeah, yeah, we know that. And they go, well, what do you think your users are going to do? They're going to beat their heads against the wall and, and think it's, they're doing something wrong. You've got to tell them that it doesn't work. And they were like, no, you can't say that the software doesn't. And, uh, it was such a relief when we started publishing our own books because we, we, you know, we could have this conversational over the shoulder look. Yeah, yeah, this this feature is just pretty sucky. Don't use it. Yeah, <laughs> and so on. Anyway, I digress. How how did the? Um, it's funny because I did all this research. I read as much content of yours as I could because I I wanted to like really get an understanding for you know who you are and and how to have the best conversation and. Like right as I'm getting ready, prepping for this interview, like, I don't know, five minutes before it started, this question just popped in my head. What's with the covers, the sketches? Like, how did that start with the, there's birds, there's different animals. How did that come about? Yeah, uh, that goes all the way back to 1987, believe it or not. Uh, we had done uh, our first seven books and they were all really little pamphlets. You have to understand, we were a tech writing consulting company. I had this idea that we wanted to do product and uh, you know turn some of the manuals that we basically we were a tech writing consulting company. I recognized open standards were happening. People were asking us for the same manual, so I started writing my contract so I'd keep the rights and then be able to uh, you know just modify the manual for someone else. And then we we uh, we had a big slump in the in the tech industry. I guess it was '84, and we, we decided to try turning some of these manuals that we kept the rights to and were selling to uh, to companies, licensing to companies into, into standalone books. And, and uh, we were kind of focused at that point on Unix. And there was a really good book on Unix. And I said, wow, we'd have to really beef up our manual to, to compete. And I had this idea, which actually came from another one of our consulting jobs where we were doing a manual for a financial services firm it's actually for SWIFT, believe it or not, Society for Worldwide Inter, Inter, Interbank Funds Transfer, software to, to run SWIFT. And the traders uh, wanted to have a manual that they could slip under their keyboard, you know, that was just small. And, you know, this is the days when, you know, computer manuals were big, you know, binders, you know, from you know, often even with dot matrix printouts. And so we said, oh, let's make the Unix manual smaller. We we had we had written this manual for a, for a CAD CAM company, and they wanted basically the basics of Unix and the basics of VI. And we split it into two books, and we had these two little pamphlets. One was called Learning the Unix Operating System. The other was called Learning the VI Editor. And they they had the same cover, just a different title. It was just like a we had the daughter of one of our 
employees was an artist and she drew these nuts and we called them nutshell handbooks. They were just, you know, and later we did the, the, the quick reference books, the in a nutshell quick reference books uh, that actually used that nut as a logo for many years. And then we had seven of these things and people were complaining. They didn't realize we had seven books. And the guy who was in charge of the program went out and hired a designer who did something, you know, expected. It was geometric and high tech. And, and I just said, this is just not us. And one of our writers went home and talked to her housemate, who was a, a, uh, a designer at Digital Equipment Corporation. And she said, oh, those Unix program names sound like strange animals. And she, she actually literally kind of did seven covers for us. Somebody we did not know. It was really one of the, you know, if you talk about open source as a gift culture, the animals were a gift from somebody who, who was a stranger. And we looked at them and went, those are really weird. Because they were some of the really weird covers too. You know, Sednok with the big lumpish creatures, the, the, the one that went on VI with the, the tarsier with the big eyes and big fingers. And we just said, yeah, let's go for it. And, and of course, it, it stuck. I love it. But anyway, that's ancient history. We should move on to more. No, it, uh, that is actually, the, that's the most important thing we'll cover today. <laughs> anyway. So those two articles, are, or the essays, so it's a collection of essays, yeah. four essays, 21 technologies for the 21st century. Are these published yeah. yet? Because I got like a preview version of them, I believe. Yeah, you know, they're actually follow on to an article uh, I wrote called Welcome to the 21st Century, which is out on the O'Reilly.com site as a public site. These four essays are actually uh, subscriber only on O'Reilly.com. And I've written two of them, two still to come. So basically O'Reilly uh, is now, really, it's really the, the heart of our business is our online learning platform. And you know, it's, it's you know, tens of thousands of books, tens of thousands of hours of video. You can look for answers. Uh, it's really kind of, you know, there's some traditional learning. In fact, live online training is one of the biggest features of the platform. We also do uh, events that are kind of like meet the expert, kind of hour-long podcast-ish kind of videos. Uh, I just did one yesterday on the welcome to the 21st century, which is really an introduction to the idea of scenario planning. You know, everybody kind of says, what will happen? You go, you don't know what will happen, but you know uh, what you can imagine a lot of things that might happen. And then you can ask yourself, what are the robust strategies that you can use to adapt to them? And so I kind of took that framework and I kind of said, look, here's some, oh, the way to think about the post-COVID future. And then our, our, our uh, VP of marketing said, well, could you do some more follow-on that's just about the specific technologies and we can use that on the platform? So no, they're not available uh, outside, although we do have you know, million plus, uh, millions of active users on our platform. So it, it has readership there. And uh, what I'm really trying to do in those essays, there's four essays, and the first one's called Table Stakes. And it's really kind of like, what is the stuff that isn't going to go away, but that you, know, you just have to get good at? And that's everything from you know, communication to uh, math. And in a lot of ways, these pieces are, are kind of pointers to where do you learn these skills. And a lot of the po them are pointers to content in our platform, which is what they're really for. They're kind of guiding people to, to use it more effectively. But I'm a big believer in you know, pointing to the best resources wherever they are. And so you know, I go, hey, you want to learn linear algebra? Uh, MIT professor Gilbert Strang has these great lectures from the 1990s. They're on MIT OpenCourseWare. Uh, you know, that's better than anything we have, so go there. I've always kind of done that in my career. I remember early in my publishing career, I, my, I astonished my competitors by, by saying, well, we will, you know, we're trying to 
get everybody excited about Unix and the X window system. Uh, let's do a bibliography together of the best books. And they were like, what, you're going to help promote our books? And I said, yeah, because I basically feel like if we do this, you know, this bibliography and we distribute it to bookstores, they'll give more space to the category and we'll get our share of the category. And they were like, what are you doing? But yeah, sure. <laughs> but uh, I, I, I've always sort of tried to have that approach to business where you're trying to create value for the, for the customer and it's not a zero sum game. Now, I, I fully agree. And I love your mentality and I love it. And I actually appreciate it even more having been a couple of years into this education business because yeah. I have that mentality of, you know, let's get together and do something great and push the industry forward. And not everybody yeah. is like that. And everybody's at different stages as well. But I like, it's rare. It's rare when I see people that are like that. My sales team was like, Hey, we're going to have them on. They like, our direct competitor, I was like, they're not a competitor. They, they're like, they're the 800 pound gorilla. They, they have the best content in the world. And we would point to them for like so many things. Uh, so I've, I've just, I'm a huge fan of, of the content and what you guys do and how you've shaped the industry in the last 40, 50 years. So, uh, I guess, thank you. No, you're welcome. It's a lot of work. Yeah, we're trying, we're trying to be useful. And I think today, you know, our, our platform is used by many thousands of, of enterprises, you know, the biggest part of the business is actually enterprise. And that actually is an interesting, you know, point because it actually shifts somewhat. And we can watch the shift of technologies within the enterprise. You know, we're, we're at this funny place where our, our hearts are in emerging technologies and we've been an advocate for emerging technologies. You know, we did, we, we first wrote about the World Wide Web when there were 200 websites and we're like, this is the best thing since sliced bread. We created the first web portal. You know, we did the first ad supported website, you know, same thing with open source. I convened the meeting where the term was voted on by open source leaders or free software leaders. And they said, yeah, we're going to use this new term. I did all the PR for it. You know, so I, I kind of been an advocate for emerging technologies, but our, our you know, our core base for the, the heart of our business is the enterprise. And so we're really at this sort of coal face of enterprises trying to understand, oh, wait, OK, this is the way we used to do things. This is how we are going to have to do things. And you see this, you know, that, that there's some of that shows through. And like if you read the second of the two articles, which was, is called uh, The New Normal, it's really just about things that they're kind of old hat to a lot of us, you know, agile software development. And you go, but guess what? There's big lagging industries that are still doing waterfall. And I'm very, my nose is right up to one of them, uh, government, because I've been, you know, my wife started a nonprofit called Code for America, and now another one called United States Digital Response, which is helping government with respond to COVID. And it's crazy ass stuff that they're still doing, you know? So, you know, and there's a lot of laggard industries that are suddenly waking up and going, wow, you know, cloud has been around, but we're really just trying to understand, what does it really mean when everybody has to do cloud? You know, what does cloud actually mean? Does it mean just using uh, you know uh, aws or azure or or google cloud and doing everything the, the old way no it means you actually have to adopt new workflows you have to adopt uh you know new you know practices for software development and so you know i'm, I'm kind of talking a little bit about that uh, same thing with ai we kind of you know how far along are we with big data and machine learning you know these are things that are penetrating our society in new ways and so I'm trying to kind of talk to that enterprise audience and say, okay, here's how you have to think about it. 
because there's, there's this great quote that I've always loved from uh, a guy named Edwin Schlossberg, uh, who, who uh, is really kind of a museum designer <laughs> by career. Uh, but he said, the skill of writing is to create a context in which other people can think. You know, and when I think about something like, you know, my advocacy around open source software was around, hey, look, you guys have kind of bought into this free software narrative that it's about Linux and Linux is this threat to the established order. And, you know, yeah, that's real. But you realize that you're all using free software. Did you know, like, like if you, because this was, you know, at that point we're, we're you know, five years into the internet boom, uh, you know, dot com. And I said, you all have email, right? You all have uh, a website. You, you realize that the web was put into the public domain. You realize that the the DNS, which lets you be NewYorkTimes.com instead of I don't know what their their IP addresses anymore. I used to be able to rattle it off, <laughs> you know, um, uh, you know, for that narrative. Yeah. Oh, you know, you probably have an Apache web server, and that, and you know, I kind of had these guys up on stage. I had like 10, 10 guys ago. You know, they all built shit that you're all using. Stop pretending that it's this. You know, that's that was shaping the way that people thought. And, you know, you see that throughout these articles, I'm, I'm really trying to tell people, you got to think differently, you know, like a good example is, you know, what does it really mean? How do you think in, in a sort of cloud and algorithmic world, you have to realize that a lot of these software development disciplines are, are fundamentally now management disciplines, because, and the programmers are actually doing management work, you know, the workers, you know, you go to Amazon, who takes your order? It's a bot, you know, effectively. I mean, whether we think of it as a standalone bot, it's a program. And, and the job of the programmers at a place like Amazon or Google or Facebook is they, they go in every day and they kind of go, you know, they, they go just like a manager, you know, they, they're kind of walking around looking at their, uh, their workers and going, oh yeah, this guy could shape up a little bit, you know? Oh, <laughs> you know, we just got some new data from, uh, from uh, customers that they're, you know, they, they, they're abandoning the site when this worker tries to serve them. You know, we got to get get this worker to shape up. You know, maybe we're going to fire them and replace them. You know, like think about Google. They fired their entire, uh, you know, uh, robotic workforce for doing translation and replaced it with a new AI-based workforce, you know? Uh, and they did that based on, you know, data from customers. So this is all, this is part of the management of a company now. It's not just, and of course that says a lot for like what the role of the CTO and CIO are in a company, you know, it's not just, you know, you're over here in a corner. And, and I talk a little bit about that in, in terms of security. I had this great conversation with the CIO of Goldman Sachs. Uh, and he said, you know, I'm not gonna mention names, but you know, he kind of said that, you know, two years ago, the CEO didn't have any idea who, you know, this guy is their chief information security officer. Today, he's his best friend. Yeah. <laughs> you know, all of a sudden people go, holy crap this is absolutely mission critical to the business. And that's a lot of what the, the piece, the new normal is about. You know, what are the things that were kind of like, oh yeah, they're over there. And now no, they're relevant for every enterprise. And if you don't understand them, you're at a competitive disadvantage. And then the, the, um, the third uh, installment, which I'm just beginning working on is, is really about emerging technology areas that are you know, potentially the next Silicon Valley. And I do think that we've, we've kind of gone down a kind of a, a bit of a rat hole with just sort of consumer and mobile 
and you know we're going to do one more advertising based startup and and yeah we've got a bunch of stuff that's sort of touching the physical world and logistics and you know i, I talked some about some of that in the new normal but i think there are some emerging areas you know uh agriculture you know like the fact that you know and it's just i, I talk a little bit also in the in this piece uh welcome to the 21st century uh, you know on the scenario planning stuff how do you you know watch trends and you get some little random data point and you go wow that's interesting. And you start watching. And one of the ones that just blew my socks off when I learned it a few years ago was that the Netherlands is the world's second largest agricultural exporter. How do you have a tiny country be such a big player in agriculture? And you go, oh, you go do a little homework and you go, holy shit, they are so far ahead of the rest of the world in managed agriculture. You know, vertical What did they export? What? What did they export? Uh, you know, I, 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 you didn't go that deep. <laughs> Well, no, I mean, but you know, a lot of it is, is sort of vegetables, and but they're growing them in massive, massive uh, greenhouses. They're doing vertical farming. It's all software controlled. Really? And then you kind of like, oh, and a couple of years later, there's all these startups now, you know, coming out of Silicon Valley in ag, you know? Yeah. And, and so that's one example. Another climate. I, I do, I, you know, I'm a pretty serious. I'm, I'm seriously concerned about climate, and I think you know, responding to the climate crisis is in fact the greatest opportunity of the 20, 21st century. Uh, you know, Elon Musk is just the first and most obvious climate billionaire. You know, I mean, you know, Tesla was a climate play. Solar uh, there's a bunch of climate billionaires in China, you know, around solar panels and the like. And, you know, everybody kind of, the, the, it's, it's again, this narrative mismatch. The narrative is, oh, climate is a, a, a climate, you know, changing and responding to the climate crisis is a cost and we can't afford it. It's a freaking opportunity. It's a huge opportunity. And just like, you know, open source was a huge opportunity and the internet was a huge opportunity. Climate is going to be the most amazing economic driver if we can, if we can basically get the politicians out of the way and have them stop propping up old industries and start investing in new ones. Another one that I, I, um, I think there's a lot we we kind of seen with coronavirus, you know, you know, genetics and and its role in healthcare, drug, you know, AI and drug discovery. All of these kinds of things are, you know, this this sort of we're on the cusp of some pretty serious new industries that will suck up the skills of the kind of people who used to be going to the, uh, you know, consumer internet. So you have a lot of ideas around the future in AI. It seems like you spent a lot of time thinking about this. Have you thought about like the universal basic income concepts or the freedom dividend stuff? Do you have thoughts on that? I do. I, I think that there's clearly a lot of value and, and there are some natural experiments. You, know, you think about Alaska. You know, when I talked to um, David Autor, a famous labor economist uh, at MIT, you know, he, he basically said, yeah, oh, yeah, you know, you want to two, two natural experiments, Norway, you know, what they do with their oil dividend and Saudi Arabia. And uh, in Saudi Arabia, they basically take all the oil revenue and just and they basically use this to support an idle, you know, aristocratic class and everybody else is, is screwed. And in Norway, they distribute very egal in a very egalitarian way. And it's led to a pretty good society. You know, so I, I do think that there's a role for it. I do think, though, if I had to make a choice between UBI and say, uh, you know, investing in, you know, like when you think about what's the national purpose, 
and I do think that in the you know in the U.S. we have this idea of uh, the pie. Despite our our rhetoric about opportunity, our basic action is the pie is limited. We have to do all this remedial stuff, and we have. Why do we have to do remedial stuff? Because we basically design the economy to reward elites. You know, it's systemic. Just like we have systemic racism, we have systemic inequality baked into the system. And, you know, so like if we got rid of the systemic inequality, uh, we wouldn't need UBI, you know, because, you know, it, it, so it's kind of a patch to a broken system. Whereas what we really have to do is we have to you know, focus on why, why are we rewarding, you know, bigness and homogeneity? Why are we totally ignoring the supplier side of the economy? We just basically like as long as some big company can give people stuff cheaper, uh, it's fine if they put all these people out of work. It's fine if they uh, drive down wages because they have so much market power. You know, th these are things you go, no, if, if you actually are looking at how would we balance this economy, you would say, oh, let's start out by making sure that that we have an, a, an economy that pays people well doing things that we want them to do. And again, you look at something like climate in that in that context and you go, oh, yeah. Uh, we're going to have so much work to go around. We just don't have enough money to go around because we've basically been, you know, funneling it to elites who use it in this Ponzi market of of stock buybacks. You know, and it's like trillions of dollars just going up in smoke effectively while we ignore investment in the the operating economy. That's a new term. Uh, Oren Cass used that recently, and I love it because I would always say the real economy, and it sort of nagged at me and he said no the operating economy you know we have a financial economy and you know people kind of conflate the stock market with um you know the, the operating economy and I, I actually was writing a piece I, i've written a little bit about this in a couple of pieces i wrote about google and amazon earlier uh last year and the year before about i wrote a critique of the blitz scaling idea from silicon valley uh but i also Wrote, was working on a piece right before the COVID hit. I was all ready to publish it. And I said, look, nobody's going to give a damn right now. It's called, Why is Jeff Bezos the Richest Man in the World? And, uh, and the answer is surprising. You know, people just don't really quite understand that there are two economies that overlap. And those two economies are the operating economy and the financial economy, which is a betting economy. And the reason why Jeff Bezos is the richest man in the world is because people are betting on him. You know, if you look at, say, Larry and Sergey, if they had kept Google a private company, I've done the, I've done the math based on the public filings. I, I haven't updated it for the last year or so. But if you do the math based on public filings, if Larry and Sergey had kept Google private and never become a public company and had just kept their share of the profits, they'd be richer than they are today. So... Google's a win in the operating economy. Amazon, if Jeff Bezos had just kept his share of the profits about a year ago, he would have been worth about $4 billion, not $160 billion. He wouldn't be the world's richest man. He's the world's richest man because people give Amazon hundreds of dollars in stock market value for every dollar of profit they get. You know, whereas Google and Apple and uh, companies like that get about $30. And even there, you kind of go, even, even 30, that's like, we're basically, you know, do we really think that the Google of 30 years from now is going to be 30 times the size that it is today? Probably not. 
you know it's like this this betting machine on constantly improving profits which means that when companies get to a certain size they have to start screwing their 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 their, their workers they have the to start crunch. screwing their 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 customers uh, you know google you know the, what i was writing about last year was about the way that google has increasingly you know used to be this enabler for this rich ecosystem of businesses on the web and category after category they go actually better for our users if we just offer, you know, never mind sending them to TripAdvisor. We'll just have Google travel. You know, and that would be fine if Google said, okay, we're going to introduce a travel site and it's going to have to go through all our same algorithms and compete with TripAdvisor and Rice. But no, they just pin it at the top and, and go, you know, we are the winner. You know, that's something I've been, I've been uh, writing about. I'm starting to work with the economist Mariana Mazzucato on a project to document what, what I'm calling algorithmic rents. You control the algorithm, you control the screen real estate, and you're one of these companies. You can extract profits just by deciding, you know, you're the first result. Uh, anyway, so there's a bunch of stuff like that that I'm kind of uh, digging in on and, uh, you know, you think about is that how true is that in the app store? I'm trying to get more and more data on that so I can make that case with more rigor. I've been getting more involved upping my education and my skill level and like investing in how the market works. Best resources I found there, uh, Ray Dalio. Uh, he's got, oh, yeah, Ray is great. Yeah, he's got uh, some amazing videos that when you understand how futures work and how the stock, you know, the financial, market as you're referring to it or the financial economy when you understand how that works it's almost like odd like it feels weird to to understand how much money there is and how it works but i want to bring that back to um, talk a little bit about alpha tech ventures and yeah. what what are you given your your knowledge and your passion for the tech industry and, and media and writing what are you guys investing in well, uh, let me explain a little bit what uh, Array Alpha Tech Ventures is. It's been around uh, 12, 13, 14 years. Uh, originally, we were one of the first seed firms, you know, kind of somewhere between angels. And you know, it used to be you just kind of, you have angels and then you do an A round. And we were kind of like, no, we're, we're sort of a halfway in between. And we were investing in things that were sort of out of the O'Reilly network of people that we knew. You know, a good example would be, uh, Planet, which is the, the microsatellite company, uh, they the company was formed at Food Camp. You know, <laughs> when the, the founders met some investors, and you know, we were we were one of the first investors, or uh, Fastly, which is a public company now. You know, came out of our our um, you know Arthur uh, Bergman, who was the founder, was was one of the people who um, kind of came to me and said, "Oh, you've got to do a conference for this." For his, 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 for our tribe, it was all the people who were doing, you know, operations and making the the, the stuff work under the covers, and uh, you know, so so we were investing in people out of our network. In uh, starting about, if, I don't know if it's four years ago, my partner Bryce Roberts had this idea for something he was calling NDBC, and uh, it was really a reaction to the kind of unicorn fever in Silicon Valley. Uh, and I was writing stuff to critique it, you know, just like, look, you know, increasingly entrepreneurs are more like uh, actors in a, you know, in, in Hollywood, you know, they get hired for productions by VCs, you know, the goal is not really a company, it's an exit. 
and you could see it. You know, you go talk to people at a cocktail party and you say, How are you, how's your company doing? And they say, oh, we just raised our B round, you know, at this valuation with this much money. You go, that's not your business. You know, at least I don't think it is. The fact is, for many people, it is their business. And people weren't focused, again, on the operational economy. And so with NDVC, Bryce recognized that there was this underserved market, which is companies that are focused on revenue and profits instead of just growth and a, and a financial market exit. And, and, you know, obviously O'Reilly was that kind of company. I started with $500 and we just grew over a long period of time. We were funded by our customers. And so he kind of built a process where he, you know, had companies apply and we've ended up, you know, uh, in the NDVC portfolio, you know, getting companies from all over the country uh, women and, and uh, people of color as founders, because, hey, you know, when you're looking at companies in the operating economy, as opposed to in the Silicon Valley betting economy, the people are like, hey, you know, I have this, uh, this market I'm serving, and there's people who, who, who love what I do, and they're giving me money, and I just need some money to grow the, to grow the business further. And it, it, it's kind of funny, because it's been a, a great investment thesis, but you really see how the system is sort of rigged against it. You know, in a typical VC firm, you actually, you know, every time you get a new financing, you get to write up your portfolio and you get to uh, tell your, you know, your, your LPs, limited, yeah, <laughs> yeah, your LPs that, 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 you know, look, your investment's more valuable now. And we have some companies where you go, we gave them $500,000 and now they have, you know, uh, you know, $5 million worth of revenue and they're profitable and they don't need any more money. So there's no write-up to be had, you know, but it's clearly a great business. And, you know, we've, you know, it's, it's kind of interesting. Many of them will go on to be operating businesses. We believe some of them will end up getting acquired because they're great businesses. And, you know, there's obviously this lots of stories from out there in the industry. Uh, and one of my favorites was the guys who did this, um, you know, the RX bars, you know, the, um, yeah. Yeah, it was two guys, and and, and uh, they were they were both their friends, children of, of immigrants who were all in the food services business, and and uh, they'd gone off to you know business school, and they they were talking in the in the kitchen of of one of the the, the two founders, and they were talking about pitching you know to raise money, and and the dad said you know shut up and go out and sell some bars. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, so they went out and uh, they took his advice and they basically, you know, they kind of pooled a little bit of money they had and they basically made some bars and they figured out they could, they could sell through the CrossFit network and they ended up raising no money and they ended up selling for 500 or $700 million and they got all of it. Cause like, Holy shit, you know, the customers funded them, <laughs> you know, I mean, other than a little bit of family seed funding. And, and that's kind of the, the story of, of NDVC is to build these businesses that are actually in the operating economy, that their outputs, you know, like when I started rally, I thought, you know, I'm doing stuff that customers will pay me for. And most of our businesses have been in that category. You know, they're either, you know, we're selling books or we're selling events or we're selling subscriptions to this online service. And, and the funding is real operating revenue and profit, you know, and we've never had to take, money 
from outside. I mean, we've had a number of equity exits because we've spun stuff out and sold it. We sold GNN. We start, did some early work in collaborative filtering. We bought a, 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 a company that was doing key, collaborative filtering kiosks and that we spun that out into a company and sold that. You know, so a bunch of things that we did over the years where we had sort of equity infusions uh, that came from things like that, uh, you know, we, we, and then we started doing VC or, you know, our, our originally with an internal fund, we, you know, our first big, big win was blogger, which Evan Williams, you know, we were, he was actually a former employee and uh, we, we funded it and, and it, we, we took him, we stood by him right through the, uh, you know, where it was down to him sleeping under a desk, keeping the servers going. And then uh, as it, as the market came back after the, 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 the nuclear winter, we actually helped them negotiate the sale to Google. So, so entrepreneurship in one of your articles, uh, you link and it was, it really caught me off guard because it was counterintuitive about entrepreneurship actually declining. And you had a reference and I went in and read the reference and I was actually really surprised right. about that. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah. Um, well, there's actually a, a fascinating article that I, I have an I, a economic study. I've just read the summary. I have not read this study. Uh, some people des- describe it as as uh, uh, Webline entre- entrepreneurship. You know, uh, you know, Thorstein Webline is the 19th century econ- economist uh, who came up with the, or maybe it was even early 20th century, but the idea of conspicuous consumption. You know, where people are basically doing things for display, and it's like you know there's a way that a lot of our VC has become about it is a kind of status thing about it rather than, you know, investment, investing in real needs. And I, I, I think that the reason why, well, there's two reasons, probably the biggest reason why entrepreneurship is declining. And I, I'm quite certain of it is the focus in antitrust on consumer benefit because the bottom line of, of, of our current, thinking is that if the consumer wins, it's all good. And it's very hard, particularly in the area of digital goods, which often have no price to say, hey, you know, like, hey, we're getting all this free stuff. It's great. What's there to complain about? And what they're missing is the fact that almost all markets have two sides, you know? And so when, you know, whether it's Walmart or Amazon, who's squeezing the suppliers, all the people who are on that supply side make less money. They have less money to pay people. They have less money to invest in R&D. They have less money to come up with new products. Uh, you know, and I really see this in the web, you know, where Google, you know, this was this, you know, Google's original mission was find the best content on the web and send people to it. And now more than half of all searches end on Google. Google just gives you the answer. And they do that either with their own products, which they've developed internally, or they do it by making a, you know, a single decision. We're going to partner, you know, we're going to do a five-year contract for, you know, music lyrics with so-and-so, you know? And so effectively they're, they're building a centrally planned economy with Google as the central planner. And it only looks like it's still a free market. So here was this revolution in free market economics, you know, literally where, uh, you know, if you if you think about Google search, it was this brilliant innovation, you know, in which the coordinating function is this sort of, you know, massive number of, of, of sources of data. And, you know, in traditional economic theory, price 
and price signaling is, is sort of the primary coordinator of the invisible hand. And here in, in Google search, uh, there was price was not one of the factors. You didn't get to bid your way to the top of Google results. I mean, yes, price kind of tried to worm its way in in the form of SEO, you know, and price certainly played a role in the side, the parallel market that he did for advertising. You know, the, the genius of their original design was search is, is really kind of a pure play that's not affected by people paying for anything. And then we're running the same search through another search engine, which an, an, an auction engine, which will produce ads and will produce the money. And so they had this incredible invisible hand matching up the suppliers of information with the consumers of information that was a beautiful advance. And then they basically said, well, actually, you know, we can, we can actually, and particularly as, as, as screen real estate was reduced on mobile, they said, well, we actually have to get better at just giving people the answer. And what it does is it basically takes away the opportunity from the supplier side. And so when, you know, when Google says, we're going to give you Google travel results and we're not going to send you any more to TripAdvisor or we're not going to send you any more to Yelp or we're not going to send you any more, more to this you know, website, uh, you know, they're basically starving businesses of, of traffic. And I think that that happens across the economy. You know, when Amazon said, you know, and again, it was bad enough, you know, when your supermarket or Walmart says, oh, yeah, we're going to do, you know, our house brand product and compete. But that was sort of pretty granular, you know, it's like, oh, yeah, it's pretty clear that batteries or toilet paper is a commodity. But when Amazon goes, wow, somebody came up with a really great new idea, we can see it in the Amazon marketplace. And we're just going to go make that product. That's sort of rifle shot at a particular small company. Yeah, that's just, you know, it's, it's really what Tim Wu calls the curse of bigness. Actually, I think that goes back to Louis Brandeis. Uh, you know, we've, we've optimized our, our economy for size. And now we're reaping, you know, the whirlwind, which is, yeah. And there's a lot of people who don't have income. Uh, you know, they've been encouraged to borrow. You know, I said, well, you know, we've encouraged companies to press down wages in order to drive up profits. I, I write quite uh, quite a bit in, in my book, WTF, which came out a couple of years ago. And in some of the other things, you know, I just wrote a piece for Rockefeller on AI, um, you know, sort of AI safety. And my argument, you know, the piece for Rockefeller was called, we've already let the genie out of the bottle. You know, if the idea is, you know, the worry of, of people like Elon Musk and, you uh, Nick Bostrom is, you know, we're going to inadvertently, uh, you know, give the AI the wrong instruction. You know, the, the classic Nick Bostrom was the paperclip maximizer. You know, the, the AI is supposed to create as many paperclips as possible and it eventually realizes that, that uh, uh, humans are in the way and, and becomes hostile to humanity. I go, we've already built one of those. It's called our financial markets. They t the explicit instruction is, uh, you know, maximize corporate profits. People are a cost to be eliminated. You know, I mean, you couldn't have a more clear illustration of that. And, and I kind of feel like these algorithmic systems are proto AIs. You know, Charlie Strauss, the science fiction writer, calls corporations slow AIs. And it's a great, great way to think about it. Anyway, but, you know, and, and you know, so I, I, I guess I feel like this, all these lessons from tech, uh, and we, one of the great opportunities is for us is to take those lessons and apply them to the broader economy. So my, my kind of cutting edge learning is about lessons from tech 
for the economy. Uh, you know, I like to say, you know, um, tech economies are kind of like the fruit flies of economic research, you know, because, you know, they grow up and they go through their entire life cycle uh, very burst. quickly. Yeah. But, you know, you can kind of see that boom and burst and you can kind of go, oh, you know, yeah. You know, the PC software was this sort of booming entrepreneurial economy. And then as Microsoft got bigger and they took over all the niches and they put everybody out of business, you know, everybody had to go find a new market. They did. They went and found the web and that was good. And you could say, oh, yeah, that that's. But I think, you know, we've we've sort of optimized for the wrong things. And, and again, my part of my advocacy is around the idea that the, the, the market markets in general are not a natural phenomenon. They're actually engineered by the rules and, you know, tax policy and tax incentives and so on are just as much an algorithmic intervention as whatever Facebook does to its newsfeed. You've got some good deep thoughts, my friend. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, um, I want to share with you one of my deep thoughts about learning. Okay. So, uh, did you look into like a little bit about leader bits or the podcast? Are you, are you familiar Sorry, with that? Sorry, I have not. Oh, it's Don't, fine. So, hundred percent. So I'll give you like the 30 second backstory. Yeah. Uh, so I'm an engineer for 17 years. I uh, kept seeing people get farther cause they had relationships. I was fairly, uh, introverted. And so I started, uh, writing, turned a blog into a book. And then before I published the book, I started interviewing different CTOs about their experience that created the podcast, uh, then that grew and got very popular. And then we ended up getting people calling us up saying, hey, I heard some advice uh, this the CTO gave on, on your podcast and I want to get my 100 leaders in 10 different countries to actually like implement that advice and take action on it. And so we said, okay, we built like an MVP. I got our first customer for like $50,000 a year, you know, sent it out to their people, they became the customer. And they thought it was really cool because they watched this like five minute video. It was a leadership challenge and they went and took action and actually had an experience with their team so that they remembered that experience, right? And that was really profound for them. This, That's awesome. Yeah, this concept of, you know, let's not learn 20 great things. Let's like focus on one great thing, a small story, two or three minutes, and then actual steps that you can use to go take action on it. So then we got into that business. Oh. Um, ended up raising some venture capital and, and growing. And then, uh, so the, the, I guess the takeaway from us was I was reading your content about the two pyramids. And mm -hmm. I thought, that, and, and that showed me that you spend a lot of time thinking about learning. And I've been, I'm new, like I'm, you've done this for 40 years. I'm, I'm new, I'm two years into this, but I came up with that a very, the way you articulated that is like how I, something I knew to be true based off of experience, but I didn't have words for it. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so I was I was very excited uh, to to see that come out and then have those words for it because that really is important. This concept of uh, people who are newer need this highly structured concept, and people right. who are high performance they need almost need to go reference it as they needed to go pick it out. And we were coming to that conclusion after making these like leadership challenges, but then some people needed like programs that were differently structured and other people wanted, you know, to go yeah. in and like grab a challenge on like team communication. And so coming to those conclusions separately, I always think is interesting because I, I tend to seek truth. And I find that when two separate entities come to the same conclusions, there's some good truth. I'm there. totally with you. Yeah. I, I think that fundamental idea, and, and it, it, it's sort of obvious, you know, you think about, you know, say learning to read, you know, you need structured work until you can read and then you can read anything. 
you know, and so our thesis in on our, our platform where we offer both structured training, you know, like, hey, you want to learn to program in Python, uh, you can have uh, go to a live training. Uh, you know, you want to use uh, learn to use TensorFlow. Here's a live training or here's a structured book. But then when you want an answer, bang, you know, it's like you want to just go look it up. You know, you have a question and and obviously there are you know companies like Stack Overflow that you know fill that role, uh, but we're actually we're actually doing a bunch of pretty powerful engineering on our product to actually make it a much better answers platform. You know, for that second use case because that's really we look at uh, you know our our logs of what people do on the platform and you know there's a set of people who do linear learning and there's a set of people who just like going and looking for answers, and I think most of the online learning world is is sort of focused on the structured part of it, you know, all the way up to, you know, look at something like Coursera, you know, we're going to give you a mini degree, you know, kind of a micro degree. So in reference to moving industries forward, right, regardless of competition or brand or anything like that, the reason why I was sharing that concept of the challenge with you, just the littlest amount of information to get them to go take action, it works really well in like in management, uh, you also see companies like DataCamp that have like the interfaces yeah. where you do the challenges. But we we just focus just in like leadership team management. That's like our little area. But the reason why I share this with you is uh, I'll send you a couple samples. But I think if you guys I'll made see. yeah, if you made some challenge content, you'd be blown away by how people respond to that. It's actually very very fascinating the different uh, type of experience when you challenge someone to actually go perform an action with their team and then come back and like journal about it really quick and you give them those steps, it, it, it creates such a profound difference. And, you know, we're smaller, we're trying to grow. Uh, we have two lines of business and right now our, our podcast line of business is doing better than our leadership line of business. And so we are focusing more on that right now. So I was thinking, you know, because we're focusing more on that right now, uh, why not share this innovation with you? Maybe you guys can amplify this concept. Uh, it's really worth worth trying. Obviously, you look at, at, at there are definitely sort of challenge, uh, you know, businesses that are more technical, you know, sort of like hacker rank, you know, you're going, okay, we're going to go do, you know, bug bounties. Uh, you know, that's a kind of challenge. Yeah. Uh, you know, Holberton School, you know, the way they teach actually is they, they basically don't do courses. They give you they give you pro, they give you projects hmm. and they have a bunch of resources. You know, which I th- which I love. You know, they're kind of like you know, even in programming, it's like okay, your job is to do hello world. I uh, have write a program that does hello world, and you go, what, what the hell is that? And you know, they go, well, here's a bunch of resources about programming. Go go uh, you know go study it and come back. And you know, it's like as opposed to you know somebody holding your hand the whole way. I, I think that's. Uh, uh, pretty interesting and uh, Kaggle, you know, I haven't heard of that. Oh, oh, it's owned by Google now, but that's basically data science competitions, and you know they really were challenges. You know where companies literally would say, or you think about the Netflix you know, algorithm challenge, which was early in that. Oh, Zillow had one too. That's uh, actually yeah, interesting. Yeah, exactly. So uh, it it is an interesting idea. I, I'll, I really will take a look and try to think about how that uh, how how that all fits. Yeah, uh, did you see the Facebook one too? Where they tried to do the spot the deep fakes? Yeah, that's gonna the deep fake stuff is something that I think about quite a bit because it's kind of like I don't know how you solve that problem. I actually saw some there were some I think government programs out there uh, trying to get people to come up with some of these identity deep fake problems. 
But uh, do you have any thoughts on that? And then we can wrap up. Well, I think probably the first thought I would have is that for some class of problems, uh, you know, there's this sort of a page rank kind of, of approach, you know, which is how authoritative is the source. That being said, you know, all of the traditional media that used to be authoritative is so jumping on the page view bandwagon that, <laughs> you know, that, that they're, they're not, you know, journalism doesn't work the way it used to. I still remember, you know, kind of getting schooled in journalism early in the days of blogging, where uh, I was talking with uh, John Markoff, famous New York Times reporter on tech, and he gave me a, a tidbit of news. And I thought, well, God, this is from John Markoff. How authoritative is that? And I said, can I, can I, can I blog this? And he said, I'd prefer if you got a second source. You know, it's like, don't trust me. Go find somebody else who tell you the same thing. And here's some people you could talk to. You know, and I was like, whoa, that's, you know, like that's how journalism used to work. Yeah. <laughs> and now it's like, man, this is a hot story. Jump on it. Yeah. <laughs> so so that that won't won't work in quite the way it used to. Uh, but I, I still find that there's a lot of, I would bet that there's some work that you can do, you know, like if, if you think about, say, here's somebody saying something, you go, well, we have a corpus of everything else they've ever said. And this is clearly not consistent with that. Mm, that's interesting. Yeah, raise the red flag. Or, um, you know, I, 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 you know, there's a lot of things you can do with, with if you have a lot of somebody's words the small word choice differences. Yeah, I still remember a beautiful, beautiful piece I heard once on the radio about Agatha Christie. Somebody had done analysis of all of her novels. And there's a point in her career when she was quite old, when her language became much more specific. And it was she ended up having Alzheimer's. And she kept writing. And it was clear that she knew something was going on because the novel or the point at which this happens in the analysis, it was just was it's like her 90th novel uh was about was about a detective who's losing his memory oh you know? and it's just like so that's wow. poetic yeah <laughs> well, the, and the courage the courage to go i'm losing it and i'm going to keep going you know and but but the point is you know you kind of go okay we had 90 books to see how she wrote and something is different and so i i kind of feel like there are some techniques you know, and they've, you know, people in, in literature have kind of applied some of these go, yeah, you know, we're kind of looking at this uh, play and we think this might not be Shakespeare because, you know, or paintings, you know, same kind of thing. You know, it's like there's a lot of fakes there and you go, no, it, it's not easy and, and it's particularly not easy in real time. And, and then even if you have a real stuff, maybe it's not faked as far as the deep fake you put on a mask of someone else, but you have the out of context stuff too that happens. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, the fact that you can create a, uh, you know, a person saying things that they didn't actually say, I, I bet that there are some checks on that, 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 you know, people who have enough data could do if they really want to, you know, a, a Google or a Facebook could probably go, no, actually, you know, that doesn't use the, the words that Nancy Pelosi actually uses, or the timing is slightly off, or there's probably all kinds of, of small bits of signal you know you look at just how the internet has figured a lot of this stuff out just lots of small signal that was not obvious at all in what google did originally and i think again that doesn't mean it'll get solved in time for 
the fall election. You know, and the, <laughs> you know, it's like any other exploit. You know, we have to get faster at responding, and, and until we get, you know, we also there's probably some social principles that could be applied, like, you know, if it's a critical issue, be more aggressive. You know, I still remember this is a very trivial example, but I used to build a uh, in the early days of web scraping, we built this tool for looking at you know computer book market by scraping Amazon, and and we we were looking at all the categories and you know how, what was our relative standing against our competitors and and we were using a, a tree map which is a kind of visualization of categories and I still remember that my metric was uh, you know okay if this we we had a category at the smallest level it was sort of a five or six uh, level deep. I said, look, if there's five titles with the same keywords in the title, we'll call it a category, you know? But if there's only one, if there's one bestseller, we'll call it a category because I know that if there's one bestseller, there will be more soon because all the other publishers are going to swarm on it. You know, so I had this heuristic, which was turned out to be quite true. You know, as soon as there was one book that kind of blew out in, in some new thing, it would become a category and I could call it, uh, before it actually happened. And so in a similar way, you could kind of just say, okay, we know this is this is about the election that's that's coming up. You know, we're we're gonna basically put a much higher standard rigor on it. And again, one of the things that I, I think people uh, are really confused about when they think about social media is this is all about the algorithms, uh, you know, somehow suppressing speech and it isn't it's all about what do you promote you know i mean the fact is there's no obligation you know it's like people can have completely free speech and you just don't have to be promoted you know right now i mean facebook is being held to the standard there's some random speaker in hyde park and the and the you know the london police are supposed to round up a crowd for them you know, because, uh, you know, they're saying something inflammatory and this, you know, this will be great, you know, because <laughs> uh, we'll get, a, we'll get a, a mob going. It's like insane. You know, it's like the fact is if people are, are doing stuff that's controversial, like if they get organic following, great, but don't let, you know, there's a lot of signal in there. Anyway, lots, lots, who, lots. Who do you done. know, if I want to do a, like a special episode on that, on that concept, who do you know that would be good to talk to about that? Like, I, part of the question is who would talk to you about it. Uh, uh, let me do a little homework and let's take that offline. Yeah, if it pops up, great. Matt, Tim, we did it, my friend. We made a podcast. Right. How do you feel? Right, thanks. Thanks a lot. This is great. Talk soon, Tim. Thank you so much for listening. And if you found this episode useful, please share it with a friend or a colleague who you think would get value from it. And if you have topics that you would like to hear discussed on the podcast, either add me on LinkedIn or send me an email, joel at moderncto.io. Every time I get an email or LinkedIn message, it absolutely makes my day and inspires me to keep going.